Oh, God, create in us such a longing for the bridegroom to return in person. What we have now is so rich and powerful, the taste of eternal life, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit revealing the bridegroom to us. But we long, O Lord, for your return, for your kingdom to come in actual residence on this earth. For these tents we live in now long to be redeemed. I'm referring to our bodies as tents, okay? These tents long to be redeemed as you have redeemed our souls. Give us life, Lord. That was actually what I was going to conclude the message with. And I'm not concluding the message, okay? It's like, wow, that was fast. That was good. Thank you very much. <laughs> We've been on this 40-day uh, prayer challenge since Valentine's Day. And a way to keep up with it, the last 15 days in February, we were in this 40-day challenge. So we're in day four, so that's 19. So we got, you know, a little ways to go. It's going to go all the way through uh, March 31. But why would we launch something like a a 40-day prayer challenge? And and really and truly, it kind of tells on us, does it not, that we need at times to have a prayer challenge. Are you following me? That instead of us having this constancy, we need to have these moments of where we're reminded of the importance of communion and fellowship with the Lord to develop spiritual disciplines in our lives that uh, helps us. It doesn't mean that we, uh, we don't have, you know, spirituality. It means we need a greater spirituality. And we just don't need interruptions from time to time during the day for prayer. We have to have some way of getting into this constant fellowship with the Lord. Um, I think a prayer list is good, but a prayer is more than a list, is it not? It's this communion with the Lord. And, uh, you know, Jesus' disciples came to him and asked, asked him, you know, show us, show us how you pray. Teach us, teach us. If something can be taught, that means something can be learned. And so it's like, well, it just comes natural. And undoubtedly, the disciples saw something in Jesus that they didn't think came naturally for them. And they said, we need you to show us how you do that. How do you pray? And why would they, why would they even come to that conclusion? Well, they'd get up early in the morning, and he's gone. His mat is empty, and they go out looking for him, and he's somewhere away from where they're, they're dwelling right then, and, and uh, they obviously realize he's out there praying. Now, if he was praying to show them an example, he would have went outside the room where they were at and just knelt down next to the door so they could hear how he was praying. But why would Jesus take time like that to pray? You can't say it was just to be an example. It was... It was his life of communion with the Father and wanting to make sure that everything that day that he was going to do is with the Father's direction, with his wisdom. So Jesus started his ministry out with 40 days, did he not? 40 days of fasting and prayer. But he didn't seem to make a big deal out of fasting part after that. Do you ever find in the New Testament Jesus fasting after his 
40 days of prayer and fasting. I don't think you'll find it. Uh, he did go a whole day. We know his last day when he was arrested, being brutalized. He didn't have anything that day. And I'm, he might have fasted. We just don't have a record of it. Well, we do have an interesting thing that we're going to look at in just a moment about where his disciples were uh, looked upon as, why aren't they fasting? I want to give you the title of, of the best book I've ever read on fasting. And that's what I'm preaching on today. How about fasting? We got goodies outside. We had Sunday school. We got a thing tonight, finger food. And I'm going to talk about fasting. How's that? What a momentous day to talk about fasting. Even bringing a steak tonight. How about that? Well, we're going to fast tomorrow. That's right. We're all going to fast tomorrow. So we're going to chow down and uh, we'll start our fast tomorrow. Let me... uh, I'm just going to read something to you that is in the book that I'm going to give you, if you want to write this down, because a lot of people are familiar with John Piper, great pastor, uh, has written some great books, God's Passion for His Glory, and uh, Brothers Were Not Professionals, as he writes about the ministry, but he, he wrote a book called Hunger for God, Desiring God Through Fasting and Prayer. It is the best book I've ever read on fasting. Um, Some of you might be familiar with the name David Platt, who used to pastor the Church of the Brook Hills, is now uh, head of the Southern Baptist Missions. And a lot of you are familiar with Francis Chan. Together, those two guys have developed something called the Multiply Movement. Well, they were asked to reread and redesign or have some kind of measure of input in Piper's 1997 original book, Hunger for God. And so it's been redesigned, but this is what they said in the foreword of the 2013 edition. We have tried to imagine what it would be like if our churches were filled with believers fasting regularly and biblically. What might God be pleased to do if his church rises up to say, this much, O God, we want you. We encourage you to read this book, asking great things from God, who is able to do more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. It's a pretty good uh, credit to that book, is it not? Before I get too far into the message about fasting, I want to say this. Fasting does not give you spiritual leverage over anyone. And, it, and it's not spiritual credentials. I'm, I remember hearing someone tell me that they made a decision after fasting 21 days. And I was like, I, I disagreed with what they were saying about the decision. And I said, well, if I fasted 40 days, does my 40 days trump your 21 days? You know, they didn't like that either. But, you know, you... you if we start using things as credentials to make our decisions, and it's like, well, I fasted, therefore you have no right to question me about what I'm saying or what I'm doing. That's what I'm trying to get at. Jesus tells of two men that went into the temple and prayed. And you recall this. He said it was a, a, a Pharisee and a tax collector went into the temple to pray. And the tax collector prefaced his prayer by telling God how thankful he was that he wasn't like the low-life people like that guy. 
And yet he proceeded to tell the Lord, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I have. And over in, in the corner there was this publican, this tax collector, who wouldn't even look up, could only say, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, That guy's prayer got through the roof. God heard his prayer and justified him. But here's a guy who fasted twice a week and gave a tenth, and you can check off that and check off that. That doesn't mean that that makes us spiritual. So what is the right way to fast? Fasting is part of a lot of cultures, a lot of religious cultures. Um, Just last week, uh, the Jewish holiday Purim was celebrated. And if you don't know the background of that, um, there's a lot of fasting in the Old Testament. And one of those occasions was with Esther. And there was this grave situation that the entire Jewish community there could have been annihilated and killed off. And so she, through her uncle, they called for a three-day fast. And last week, the Feast of Purim is a celebration of God's intervention of saving Esther and all of her people. Uh, Later on in in May, there's um, a a month-long fast by the Muslim called Ramadan. And and it's not really a true fast because it's just fast during the day. As soon as the sun goes down, all bets are off. (laughs) And they can make up for whatever they didn't eat during the day. But they, they really, that's one of their most holy times. And they take great, it's almost like, look at us, we're fasting. Jesus said, that's the wrong way to fast. Even he said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, don't do like these people who make a big deal out of it. And Jesus really didn't make a big deal out of it with his own disciples. Before I get to that, let me read you from Isaiah, a passage of Scripture. And this is like, not many places from what Jesus read from in Isaiah when he stood in his hometown synagogue. This is Isaiah 58, if you want to follow, just 10 verses. But it's about fasting, so listen up. Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out, They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near. They say, we have fasted and you have not seen it. This is them telling God, we fasted and you haven't really paid any attention. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed Yet on the day of your fasting, the Lord says to him, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast? God is asking, is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head? like a reed, and for lying in sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Verse 6, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? This is God telling them. 
This is what I want to see from your fasting, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor widower with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own family, your own flesh and blood? Then your light, then something's going to happen. Your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in darkness and your night will become like noonday. If you go to chapter 61, verse 6 sounds a lot like verse 1 in chapter 61. When you look at verse 6, it's not this the kind of fast. God is saying that he wants to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and every yoke to be broken. In verse 1, he says, The Spirit of the Lord, the Sovereign Lord, is on me, because the Lord's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for prisoners. Yet, out of all the fasting that you see in the Old Testament and the things that was talked about in the New Testament about fasting, you hardly ever see the disciples fasting, do you? In Matthew 9 is probably the greatest passage on fasting in the New Testament. And I'm not the one that said that. John Piper is the one that said that. Matthew 9, verse 14. Jesus didn't seem to be emphasizing fasting with his disciples. Why? Why was that? And the disciples of John, if you see in verse 14, the disciples of John come to him and they ask this, how is it that we and the Pharisees, now that's kind of an odd group to bind yourself to, uh, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Why isn't that discipline With your group, we've been raised with that discipline. This is part of our culture. This is the way we demonstrate our our wanting to get close to God. And we're doing it, and the Pharisees are doing it, but your guys aren't doing it. Verse 15, Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved." How can the guests, this is interesting, he, he answers their question this way, and it's about fasting. By the way, this whole passage is about fasting. There's no break in why, why don't your disciples fast. There's no break there. He says, 
why would they mourn while the bridegroom is with them? He's talking about fasting is kind of like a symbol of need or lack. And this is what, what most people fast in the Old Testament. It was usually a grave situation. They needed God to come through or give them wisdom. But he was, he was comparing fasting as a sense of mourning. He says, how would the bridegroom, why would they fast? Why would they mourn while the bridegroom is with them? He's pointing to himself as the bridegroom and to the disciples as the guests, right? There's been so many sermons preached on this about what the wineskins are. <laughs> Believe me, you can make the wineskins anything you want to make them. It, it's wide open. You know, like, okay, I think the wineskins are such and such. I'm not going to give you suggestions, but there's been paradigms. There's a new paradigm in. That means the old paradigm has to go because that's the old wineskin. It's just like, don't do that. What is Jesus talking about, though? This is about fasting. The wineskins really is about fasting. It's obvious that this is the subject. So the wineskins, the wine. Skins and the wine are symbols related to Christ's response to John's disciples. And they practiced fasting on a regular basis. I'm sure they weren't really getting it. It was probably like, what? It is like the Lord is placing emphasis on why are you fasting? He didn't ask them that, but he's telling them why the men that's with him are not fasting, right? He's telling them the why. I'm with them. And there's no need for them to fast when? Right now. But what else does he say? There will come a time when they will need to fast. And it's a time where he says that the bridegroom will be taken from them. There'll be a time when I'm not with them. Why would they need to fast then? Verse 15, he says, The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. The time will come when the bridegroom will not be with them, and they will need to fast then. It's almost as though he's saying, Right now, there's just too much joy. (laughs) We're just having too much of a good time to fast. The, The bridegroom, the Messiah is with them. There's no need to fast while I am with them. We're we're celebrating this reality that the kingdom of God has now shown up in person in the person of Jesus Christ. And the disciples happen to be with him, and there's no need for them to fast. Jesus redefined fasting in one statement, and it's this. New wine has to go into new wineskins. In other words, he says, this is what's changing. The old way of fasting is changing. The fasting to try to get God to move externally in a situation, he says, is not the main reason to fast. The main reason to fast is there's new life here, and new life has to be put in a new dynamic of fasting. He wasn't doing away with fasting. He was saying the new fasting takes on a different slant. Here's what we find out when we try to fast. We find out what controls us. 
We just, let me just make a suggestion for you. Just fast coffee for one day, you that drink coffee. Just go for it. Well, I don't feel led to do that, Pastor. You know, it's like, here's another thing that fasting will will show. It'll show us where we're at in regard to pride. Because, see, we either make one or two responses right here in this place is that, well, I, I really don't need to fast. I really don't need to fast. Or else, when we fast, we want to make it the big deal. And we want, we want to, like, let people know how spiritual we are, that we're fasting. We find out what controls us. Just, all right, let me throw something else at Just put your phone on airplane mode for like four hours. Just start with four hours. I'm not asking you to go into some kind of spasm, you know. Just put your phone on airplane mode for four hours or maybe for the whole day or stay off social media for an hour <laughs> or four hours. And, it's, and really, we find out what controls us. Food is not Remember what, when, when Satan came to Jesus during that 40-day fast, and one of the things he targeted was his hunger. And he says, you have the power to turn these stones that's around you into bread. You remember what Jesus said? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What he was saying is, you need both. But I'm not going shortcut to get there when right now I'm eating on something else. It wasn't that he was fasting for, from substance. He was fasting from that mode of substance. He was like, I'm living on something else. We see that when he went to the well in Samaria and they went to get him lunch and they brought back lunch and he says, I've already eaten. Because my meat, my bread, my food, I get something out of doing the will of my Father. So it's not that bread, he didn't make, make bread bad or, you know, he knows we need bread to live. We need food. But he's saying this, we don't just need that. We need this bread. We need the life that the Lord gives. We find out the depth of our longing. We find out the level of our dissatisfaction with where we're at. If we don't change anything about what we're doing in any kind of course of a reevaluation of our life, then we're in trouble. If we don't see any space for us to move deeper into what God wants us to be, then we're in trouble. It's going to take a revelation for God to show us the warts that we have on our lives and the deficiencies we have in us. And he can't get to them until we own up. Lord, I need you more. I need you more. I need more of who you are. I long for more. We want more. We desire more. This is one of the things that I think that John Piper brought to light in his book is we need to have a sense of longing for Jesus. We know him through the Holy Spirit, right? 
The Holy Spirit introduces us to Christ. We know that Christ personally is seated at the right hand of the Father and one day will personally come back and we will see him. But right now we don't have him with us like that. And this is what he was telling these men about. These disciples have me for now. But there's going to come a day when they don't have me and then they will long for me. They will long to be with me. They will long to have the fellowship that they once had. And he says, that will create this sense of fast, which really not, is not necessarily, I'm not going to eat, is that I'm longing for something greater than food. I'm longing for something more rich than those chocolate chip cookies out there. That's terrible to walk by chocolate chip cookies when you're trying to fast. Food is not the enemy, though, is it? Food's not the enemy. Our disposition could very well be the problem. How we look at things could be our problem. And that's why I added this last thing to the end of the message. Oh, God, create in us such a longing. Create in us a longing for the bridegroom to return, for Jesus to come back. We don't hear too many messages anymore about the second coming of the Lord, but there ought to be a sense of longing for that, of a desire to see him, to be with him, this distance between us, this spirit realm that we have to connect with him through the Holy Spirit and have to discern when he's talking to us and speaking to us. There's going to come a day when we won't have to discern it anymore. We will be looking eye to eye with the Lord. So much was said about Billy Graham and how Billy Graham finished his journey and and, uh, and I heard someone say on the radio, yeah, I'm going to see Jesus giving him a high five and a big hug. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's, you know, high five, big hug, come on. Wake. I think the whole place is excited. I think there's so much wonder and splendor and majesty in, the, in our coming into the presence of the Lord that we're going to be, you know, I, I've even said to Brenda, we think all, all these things about heaven. I says, do you, do you think you'll even like me in heaven when we're there? You know, she says, oh, of course I like you in heaven. I said, well, I just want you to notice me and say something to me every now and then. <laughs> you know, I said, well, yeah. Because I really think that our attention is going to be on someone else. I think our attention is going to be on the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb is worthy of all the praise. I don't think we're going to worry about streets of gold or whatever the houses look like. Just build my mansion next door to Jesus. That's not going to happen, by the way. But just, I think Jesus is going to captivate us, and it's not going to be, well, it sounds a little boring. It won't be anything like boring. And that sense, that longing, he wants us to have a new longing for him. Where we just don't sing songs about him coming, we long to see him. The bridge that you guys did on that last song, I have not seen that. Bear your cross while you wait for the crown. And when I saw that, it's like, if you're bearing... Your cross, you're doing more than waiting. You're longing. You're longing to throw this off, to throw off the pressures, to throw off the anxieties, to throw off the sickness, to throw off everything that's happening that you have to work your way through. There is a law, there should be a longing. It's not waiting for it. I'm longing to see that happen. 
And I believe when every saint of God, whether it's Billy Graham or whoever it is, gets close to the finish line, they see the finish line. I was pretty close to watching your grandpa cross the finish line. Didn't realize how close I was. But that man, I believe, could see the finish line, and he crossed in strength. And it is a sacred thing. I've, I've stood at the bedside of a couple of people watching them take their last breath. And it is a holy, sacred thing 